Good morning, church. It's my pleasure to be here. I hardly recognized who Jeff was talking about, but I, whoever it was, I, I was really glad to hear that introduction. Thank, thank you, Jeff. Um, for a missionary to be invited to speak on Mission Sundays is indeed an honor. It's been a long time since Donna and I were able to spend any time here. In fact, it was before our son Harrison had his accident in August of 2015. And it's the first time that we've publicly been able to say thank you for how you rallied around us as a church. You made it possible for us to, to fly back and forth uh, from Honduras, first to Erie, Pennsylvania, where he was in the trauma center. And your prayers and your support really uh, strengthened us during those dark days at the beginning of what now has become a very long recovery for Harrison. Many of you have said that you're praying for him, and we appreciate that, and I know Harrison does, and I'd like to update you just briefly on his struggle to get well. He, is, uh, he just turned 26 this month. He is completely dependent on others for his care. He cannot show emotion. He, he has movement in all of his body, but he has no real control, particularly um, fine motor skills. Uh, his wife is an angel. She weighs about 105 pounds. He weighs 140, and she just manhandles him. She bathes him and dresses him and takes care of him and loves him and makes him feel like a whole man. Uh, so we thank God for her, and we thank God that he's alive, and we pray that God will, will heal him. He is able to communicate. His wife will hold his elbow and stretch out his finger because they want to curl up like someone who's had a stroke, perhaps, and he types uh, something like text messages on an iPad. Uh, sometimes he's sweating to get a paragraph out. But we've been able to communicate, him well, uh, communicate well enough with him that we understand his cognitive ability is still there. It's amazing. It should not be. There's so many miracles that occurred for him to be where he is. Uh, we're focusing on that. We, we pray that it's for God to give him a voice and be able to stand in front of people and give his testimony. When I meet people like Harrison who deal with incredible adversity and they don't lose their faith, it is both an affirmation and a challenge for me. Some months ago, Donna was talking to him back and forth via this iPad, and she was asking him when his first memory after the accident was and what he was thinking at the time. He was in a coma, we thought, in the uh, trauma center in Erie, Pennsylvania, where he had been life flighted. And apparently within a couple of days, he was very well aware of what was going on because he can tell us who was there, what they talked about, uh, and his mom asked him, well, what were you thinking when you first realized where you were and what was going on? And he said, I tried and tried to communicate to you because I knew you thought I was in a coma and that you thought I was going to die. And I realized you couldn't hear me. And she said, well, what did you think? And he said, when I realized you couldn't hear me, I talked to the only one who could. I talked to God. Man, as his dad, I can tell you, I have struggled with a lot of whys. Why, God? Why did you let this happen to my son? 
Harrison's not a risk taker. You know, I'm a risk taker. When I was 19 years old, I had a Yamaha XS500. I would ride 100 miles an hour on I-40 between tractor trailers and just think it was the neatest thing that had ever happened. No inkling of how fragile life is. Harrison was not like that. Harrison is a better man than his father. And I want to know why, Lord. Why Harrison? Why do bad things happen to good people and not to people who really deserve it? I'm sure many of you have struggled with those kinds of questions. I don't have a good answer, but I can tell you one thing I've learned in this three and a half years of struggle with Harrison. I have learned and I am convicted more than ever that God is good, that he never abandons us. He's there for us. When the waters are going to crash on our heads, he's there. When we walk through the fire, we're not burned because he's there. And I know that the hope that we have in Jesus of a resurrection and eternal life is the most precious possession that we will ever have here in this life. I mean, think about it. How can you make sense of suffering if there is no resurrection, if there is no hope of eternal life? And that hope is what compels us who have it to be about our Father's business. We must seek and save the lost so that they too can have that hope. That's the Father's will. For everyone to come to faith and experience that hope. This morning, Brother Bob read to us uh, a text. And I'm afraid I did not communicate very well because... He read the correct text out of Matthew 11, but what was put up on the screen was Mark chapter 11. I know you've been studying through Mark with, jo- uh, with Jody, and last week even I understand that he preached about the, the sower who went out to sow the seed, and the seed being the Word of God, the good news. <clears throat> so I think that was excellent preparation for today's Missions Day. But this is the text that we've chosen. It's not in Mark, and I think when we... Uh, get through our study today, you'll see there's a very practical application that we can make to our life, starting here in what may seem like a kind of bizarre place to begin. Jesus is talking, he's in his earthly ministry, and he says, or the scripture says, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. What in the world is going on here? For Jesus to be so provoked to condemn these people, saying they are worse than those infamous cities that we read about in the Old Testament. And he says, if the miracles that had been performed in you, these three cities, had been done there, they would have repented and turned to God and existed to this day. Don't you think it's kind of harsh? I think it is, and I hope we can explore that 
a little bit later. You know, in Capernaum, we read about the story of the paralytic being let down through the roof, and Jesus forgives his sins and heals him to prove that he has the power to forgive sins. Also in Capernaum, a Roman centurion came to him who is a man of authority, had, you know, hundreds and and maybe even a thousand men under his authority. And he said, I'm a man of authority. I know that you're a person of authority. Command it and my servant who is back home will be healed. Jesus marveled at his faith and he spoke and the boy was healed and hundreds of people knew about it. In Bethsaida, not too far from Capernaum, Jesus fed 5,000 people with two fishes and five loaves. And those people saw those things and many more, and yet they did not repent. So understanding that, we might can begin to understand Jesus' level of frustration. And I hope we can make an application from that in just a little bit. But before we do, I want to talk to you about your great state of Texas. I am not a Texan. Never lived in Texas. I lived in a lot of places. But I want to tell you, I love Texas. You want to know why I love Texas? I wrote down ten reasons why I love Texas. We don't have enough time for that, but I wrote down four. Would you like to hear the top four reasons that Phil Waldron, a non-Texans, love Texas? How about it? Okay. Number one, you can be a country all on your own. Everywhere I've traveled in the Union, people teach in schools American history. In Texas, you teach Texas history. (laughs) The enthusiasm here for your state is contagious. Nowhere else, I'm serious, nowhere else that I've ever been in the United States do I encounter people that love their state. That's the second reason I love Texas. You're You're just so excited about your state. So much so that I've heard of Texans sending bags of soil to other Texans who've moved out of the state so they can spread it on the hospital floor. When their child is born, they can say, our child was born on Texas soil. (laughs) Number three, I love Texas brisket barbecue. I love Tex-Mex. I love Whataburger. Probably most of all, I love Bluebell Ice <laughs> Thank you, Texas, for Bluebell Ice Cream. Number four, I love the fact that you can t- literally take a world t- tour without leaving the state of Texas by visiting all of the famous cities that are here, like London, Paris, Rome, Carthage, <laughs> Florence, Port-au-Prince, and it goes on and on. But you know... As many years as I've traveled in Texas, I have never once encountered a city named Sodom or Gomorrah. Why do you think that is? Well, Texans are smart, right? Can I get an amen? Okay, Texans are smart. And they're smart enough to know you would never name a city where you and your family were going to live or where you hope to attract other people to live after those infamous wicked cities, would you? See, their their infamy exists even today, thousands of years after God destroyed them. 
So what was it that was so wicked about Sodom and Gomorrah that provoked God to destroy them? Well, if you're like me, you grew up in Sunday school and you heard the story about Abraham's nephew Lot who moved to the city of Sodom with his family. And God was so provoked by the wickedness of these two cities that he sent two angels on behalf of Abraham because Abraham was his friend. He sent two angels to Lot to tell him, you must leave the city with your family. And they stayed the night there in his house. And during the night, the men of Sodom surrounded the house and they pounded on the door and they insisted that Lot give them those men so that they could rape them. So, for me, as a child hearing that story and growing up in church, and for many other people, the sin that so provoked God to condemn those cities to that kind of destruction was homosexuality. But is that really all there was to it? Let's go to the Bible to see. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God, and he says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty. And did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Clearly, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality and other detestable things. But here the prophet says, perhaps in an even greater way, the sin of Sodom that so provoked God was that they were arrogant overfed, unconcerned, they neglected the poor and the needy, and they were haughty. Now, I want to ask you, do any of those descriptors describe someone you know? And maybe even a little more provoking and unsettling, I want us to ask the question today, Could the poor of the majority world that live on less than $2 a day look at us and say they are, as citizens of the United States, they've been so blessed financially, they are arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they neglect the poor and needy. That's what we want to wrestle with today. Not too many years ago, Don and I were Dallas and Fort Worth at a world mission workshop put on by Mission Resource Network, and they had invited a keynote speaker from Africa, an African brother who was a preacher and a missionary there, and as he was speaking, he was sharing about his experience here in the United States, and like a good missionary, uh, whenever he's in the United States, he's always fundraising and asking for funds for projects that they were doing back in his home country. And he shared that the most common response that he got when he asked for money for what he was doing was this. Oh, we are so excited about what God's doing in your ministry. It is, it's incredible. We pray for you every day, but we have no money. And he said, no money? You have houses for your cars And we have people that don't have houses. 
and your houses for your cars are so full of stuff, the cars won't fit in them and you park them on the driveway or out in the street. You know, I think from his perspective, he's got something. I have a personal friend who really challenges me on this score. He's a professional. He owns his own business and makes a really good income. But he and his wife have a pact. And that is that whatever amount of money they spend on themselves, they will also write a check to the church, to missions or charity, an equal amount. So they live way below their means. Several years ago, they were in San Francisco celebrating an anniversary And we sent out an email asking for the donation of a truck. And he responded almost immediately. And I thought it was because he was upgrading his truck. But I found out a few weeks ago that was not the case. Because I asked him, well, what are you driving? I thought he was driving a new four-wheel drive Tundra or something, you know, pretty cool. He said, oh, I'm driving my wife's old minivan. He had bought her a used SUV And took her minivan because he perceived there was a kingdom need that he could meet with one of his possessions. And I was humbled by that. This man could afford to drive any kind of car that he wants to. And many of his peers and colleagues do that. But he chose to sacrifice to meet a kingdom need. How do the poor see us? I mean, think about it. If we took the time to really listen and understand their perspective, how do they see us? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll all say, man, I have a long way to go to maximize the godly use of my wealth and my possessions. You know, Jesus talked a lot about money and possessions in his ministry. In fact, In the Gospels, one in ten verses talk about money and possessions. In the Bible, there are 500, the entire Bible, there are 500 verses of prayer. There are 500 verses on faith, but there are over 2,000 verses that talk about money and possessions. And I think that something so important to Jesus that he would talk about it that much should be important to us. So for the next few minutes, I want us to look at a story that Jesus told specifically to show us how God views every single dollar, every single possession that we will ever call our own. And the one that I've chosen to study this morning with you is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. If you look back in chapter 15, Jesus is talking to a group, primarily to a group of rich Pharisees. And in that day and time, rich Pharisees managed their household activities and their income-producing activities with either slaves or servants. And it was never easy to tell whether or not your steward, your slave, or your servant was stealing from you. So when Jesus started this story about a rich man who had a 
thieving steward, or as the King James says, an unjust steward, managing his affairs, he had their undivided attention. And he used this story, this context, to teach those Pharisees and anyone else like us who will read it today what God's view on possessions and money is. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He understood he had to do something quickly. Otherwise, he would be homeless and incomeless. And he designed a plan so that he would have a soft landing when his manager threw him out. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Now, can you imagine this? What was that conversation like? This guy owed 900, I don't know what today's value of that is, but he owed 900 gallons of olive oil. Sounds like a lot. And the, the, the thieving manager, the unjust steward, says, hey, cut it in half and I'm going to mark it paid in full. Paul, how would that work with one of your accounts in plumbing? Probably, probably, you couldn't stay in business doing that. This guy said, what? Are you serious? Wow. Thank you. And I'm sure he followed it up with, if there's ever anything I can do for you, let me know. And that thieving manager had him. He thought, I will. And it's going to be sooner than you think. He called in the second debtor and he said, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. At this point in the story, just like us, if we've never heard it, we would expect the master to show up and be angry at what the thieving manager, the unjust steward, had just done. Back in that day, they had debtor's prison, and I'm sure that the listeners that were there hearing Jesus tell this story thought, he's going to grab him and throw him in debtor's prison until every last penny is paid back. Because that was what is right and just. But he didn't do it. The master said... Well, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, no one expected that kind of a twist. You can almost see sort of an older guy, kind of like me, right? You know, thinning hair, maybe a little bit bigger belly than mine. And he's patting his belly and laughing. And, you know, he's dressed in this long, expensive robe and patting the guy on the back and saying, Wow. You are shrewd. You're a lot smarter than I gave you credit for. You have secured your future at my expense. Jesus continues in the latter part of verse 8, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. 
Jesus chooses that moment of irony to pull out of the story and begin to teach God's view of money and possessions. And he says, the people of this world are more shrewd than the people of light. Now that helps us a whole lot, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I've struggled with, to understand this, this parable all my life. But I think today we can get some insight. Jesus says, the people of this world are the people who believe that all there is to this life is what you experience and what you have here. So you might as well grab all the gusto that you can. And he says, those people are more shrewd than people of the light. And we know that we are people of the light because Peter tells us that God has called us out of darkness into light, into his marvelous light. So we who believe that there is a resurrection and a day of reckoning, we're people of the light. And Jesus says, you know what? We're we're just not quite as shrewd at dealing with those kinds of people as the ones who believe that all there is to this life is what you have. He continues, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let me ask you a question. Why and what does he mean by worldly wealth? What other kind of wealth is there other than worldly wealth? Jesus says, use this worldly wealth to make friends that will be in heaven that are excited to see you when you show up in eternity because of what you did with what you have Here in this life. You see, God sees our possessions as a tool to make friends who will be in heaven when we arrive. We ask the question when we spend money, what will I have to show for it? But Jesus says there's a better question. It's who will you have to show for it? Verse 10 and 11, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Jesus clearly is making a comparison between the relatively low value in the eternal scheme of things of worldly possessions and wealth and contrasting it with true riches, which are obviously, in the perspective of Jesus, something separate, distinct, and apart from our money and possessions that we have here in this life. And then finally, in verse 12, Jesus says, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What could he mean? He says, if you're not trustworthy with property, if you do not administrate and steward property that is not your own, who will give you true riches? Something that's of real value. Could it mean Could it mean that Jesus is implying that what we have, be it little or much, is not really ours anyway? That everything we have belongs to God and He has loaned it to us for the time that we have it. John Wesley, the great reformer of the 1700s, said, 
Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And I think he was alluding to something like this. I know what that means for me is that Jesus owns more than my 10% that I drop into the offering plate. He owns the other 90% that I keep for myself. And I am an administrator and a steward of all of that. Earlier in verse 9 of this passage, Jesus says that our money is a tool given to us by God to make friends who will be in heaven when we arrive. And here he says and implies that it's also a test. We're servants. We're stewards, just like the unjust steward, hopefully not doing what he did with what God has given us. You know, we leave it all behind anyway. God has loaned it to us. And the point of Jesus telling this story is to say, this is how God views money and possessions. Now, please do not be confused by my poor communication skills this morning. This is not a question of us judging each other and how we use our possessions. When we get into the judging business, my experience is that we fall into one of two extremes. The first one is those of us who have less tend to look at those who have more and we say, they have a lot. You know, they they should be given a lot to the poor, the needy, to missions. But Jesus talks about that and the scriptures talk about that. And this is one verse that I wanted to share with you. Matthew 25, Jesus is talking and telling the story about the parable of the talents. And he says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold and another to another two bags and to another one bag, each according to his ability. I believe the scriptures teach that what we have is exactly what God has given us according to our abilities. Apostle Paul in Romans 14 verse 4 says, Who are you to judge another man's servant? And I think he's alluding to this point where sometimes we look at others and we say, Well, I know exactly what they should be doing. And Paul says, "Uh Uh-uh. God gives to each of us according to our abilities. Your job is to figure out what God wants you to do with what you have. The other extreme that we fall into when we get into the judging business in this context is done by those who do have a little bit more than others. They tend to think that, and I've heard people express that, well, if those people had worked as hard and sacrificed as much as me, if they were as disciplined in me, they would have more also. I heard Timothy Keller, who's a Presbyterian preacher in Manhattan, New York, talking about this, and he was speaking to a group of professionals who, in New York, were at the peak of their field. And he says, oh, is that so? What if you had been born to Himalayan sheep herders? Where would you be right now? Would you be on Wall Street? No. You know, we are a sum of everything we have experienced, and that is determined by what family we were born into, what country we were born into. 
We could ask the question like Timothy Keller, instead of asking about Himalayan sheep herders, if you were born to parents that, that were from there, what if you were born to a poor family in Ghana, Doc? Where would you be right now? Or Western Honduras? Deuteronomy speaks to this. God is talking to the children of Israel and He says, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Church, what God wants us to do is to ask ourselves the question. Paul even talks about it in, in context of the Lord's Supper. Let each man examine himself and each woman. Examine yourself in light of what Jesus and the rest of the Scriptures say about God's view on wealth and possessions. One of my favorite contemporary Christian songs is by Ray Boltz, and it's called Thank You for Giving to the Lord. I wanted to read this as part of our closing. I'm not going to read all of it, but he says, I dreamed I went to heaven, and you were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing, and a man stood before you and said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church? His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. And Jesus took your hand, and you stood before the Lord. He said, my child, look around you, for great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. If what we understand is true about what Jesus is saying in this parable, we know that our possessions are a tool to make friends who will be in heaven to receive us and are excited about what we did with what we have. People, that is what missions is all about. 